Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast publishing every Monday and Thursday with David Savage and Jack Pierce. This is the podcast that is for the love of tech. Coming up on today's show, we're talking to Peter. He's the CEO and co-founder of ShieldPay. And then we're going to be having a little bit of a chat about red pillars. And we're not talking about neoclassical columns there, I guess. Red pillars sounds kind of... (laughs) Wow, what a a play on words that is. Yeah. yeah. No, we're talking, unfortunately, about online misogyny. From, From a Zuckerberg that we're not that familiar with. Jack, did you have a nice weekend? I had a lovely weekend. It's, yeah. um, I watched an awful lot of football this weekend and was not entertained for more than one minute. Oh dear. It was terrible football this weekend. I mean, I'm obviously not a Newcastle fan, so I didn't experience a win, but. Well, there you go. They're a rare thing. I've got two things from the weekend that I, that I thought I'd mention. Is one, one strictly related? One is football related. Okay, yeah. Um, and I know that you've seen the football related thing, but we'll get onto that second. <laughs> uh, first of all, um, obviously, yesterday was Armistice. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I just wanted to share one thing that, uh, this isn't really tech related, but I felt it was worth sharing because it was, it was something that really does make you think. Um, obviously, First and Second World War slaughter is something that feels like it's a very long time ago. And sometimes it feels quite difficult to imagine just the scale of that loss of Absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah. And I was watching the Armistice celebrations. Celebrations? Well, the Armistice... Ceremony on yeah, the BBC yeah, 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 yesterday yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, and David Dimbleby was narrating. And 10,000 veterans marched past the cenotaph, wow. followed by 10,000 um, members of, of the public who'd applied who wanted to pay their respects. And they were walking kind of four or five abreast, marching past the cenotaph at a fairly decent neck. Um, and it took a long time yep. for 20 odd thousand people to walk past. Yeah. And David Dimbleby turned around and said, Look, if you're trying to understand the level of slaughter, mm. imagine four abreast people walking mm-hmm. past the cenotaph mm-hmm. at the kind of pace that these people are walking past the cenotaph. Mm-hmm. The line would start in London and finish in Newcastle. No. For the number of people killed cool. from the UK. Line of four sort um, of thing. Yeah, from world, uh, combining World War One and World War Two, And I think that was incredible in a way of being able to visualise actually how awful that was. Fills three quarters of the country in a, in a, in a line almost. Like to visualise it like that is it, frightening, yeah. I mean, like you say, we, I mean, it was 100 years, wasn't it, since the end of the First World yeah. War. And um, it is so important, I think, for, for, for a European society to, to always remember that stuff. Look, especially at the minute where the continent... It's not on the brink of it's war, but it is, it's, yeah. it's fractured. Yeah, and um, I mean, yeah, we, we always need to remember it. I do, I, I do, there is this kind of like looming nastiness with, with, with things like this that people take the messages of Remembrance Day and things like that and turn it in a negative thing. Yeah. Like we're proud to be English, blah, 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 blah. Of course we are, but do not you dare. So I've seen, I have seen people take that message and say, this is why we're going for a Brexit, you know? Like, you see the racist dad on Facebook using it as a tool for um, the, the, edi- the editor at large, I can't remember his name, the editor at large of Reuters was on Andrew Marr yesterday, and he put it best, which is, 
absolutely Armistice Remembrance Day is incredibly important, but let's not forget the reason that that war started. Exactly. That war started because of nationalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah, nationalism yeah. is rife. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that tech should be thinking about is how to be used in a positive way to enhance democracy, to bring people yeah. into a conversation, not to divide. Yeah. Anyway, on a lighter note, the other thing, and I know you saw this because I saw it because you retweeted it, was it's the, brilliant, genius, isn't it? the genius of Charlie Austin reworked, <laughs> remixed yeah, yeah. to Park Life. Oh, it is fantastic. I mean, if, if you've seen the post-match interview with Charlie Austin, he is every every person who's been wronged in a football game blaming the refs they would have won if it weren't for the refs it's really it's fantastic to see uh, you see so many footballers these days media trained up to the eyeballs and no personality he's came out furious but the cadence in which he speaks at that sort of soft cockneyish tone that he speaks in just fit perfectly over the tune of park life it was a, it was genius it was um Highly amusing. Very good. Uh, so, yeah, if you, if you go online, have a look at it. Type in, maybe type in Charlie Austin Park. Like, it's everywhere now. It's worth a yeah. watch. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny. Anyway. And my best friend's a Portsmouth fan as well, so I took a lot of joy out of that. I bet. Yeah, yeah. Um, Peter James is our guest on the show today. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of uh, ShieldPay. But stay tuned. We do have some news after this, um, and we're going to be talking about misogyny online an interesting article, uh, an interview rather, that's in The Guardian today with Donna Zuckerberg. So stay tuned, but here's Peter. So today we're joined by Peter. Peter, you're the, the founder and CEO of ShieldPay. That's right. And ShieldPay have been around since March 2016? Yeah, it seems like yesterday, but yeah, so two, <laughs> two and a half years old. Um, and you're currently going through a funding round, so a busy time for you. Yeah, um, yeah, we opened the doors to that about sort of three weeks ago, so um, we'll know an awful lot over the next month or so I think. Well look I appreciate you taking some time to, to have no, a chat no, with no. us during that. Look for anyone who's listening and hasn't stumbled across ShieldPay what is it? Um, in essence we are a digital escrow function um, mm. that enables people or entities who don't know each other to securely pay. Um, we found that there's a, a very large niche in the payment industry for this type of payment so there's a I keep saying there's a 101 ways to pay people you do know. Not very many payments facilities are available to pay someone you don't. Mm. Um, so there's an inherent risk with paying people you don't know. And uh, we've taken a very old piece of technology in, in escrow um, that was in, uh, primarily used for transactions like buying a house uh, or an M&A where a solicitor is involved. So the solicitor of holding funds on your behalf is what an escrow process is. Uh, we created a digital version of that which requires doesn't require the use of a solicitor. So if you and I were transacting on a car, for example, uh, I was the buyer and you were the seller, I would fund ShieldPay, um, you would visibly see that those funds were available. And in, in doing that, it creates a trust environment around mm. two people who don't know each other. And the, the concept of the business did come from an unfortunate incident involving a car and one of your friends. Yes. What was that process then to work out, hey, you know, this has just happened to me, but is this a wider problem? Yeah. Um, it's, it didn't make any sense, and this is 2016, that he was he put himself in that position. So there, there, there's so many different payment options out there. That why did he go and meet a stranger um, with no idea about who he was or if this guy had the money to, 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 to transact? And when you actually break it down, it's because um, when you're paying somebody you don't know, it, it, it's really limited. Um, and so sites like uh, Gumtree, 
uh, auto trader or, or primarily local to local transactions and primarily using cash because no one's going to send money to you in Scotland hoping you'll just send the item in the post and it will deliver. It just doesn't, doesn't resonate with people. So um, a, a vast industry exists that we can really help uh, become a lot more secure but a lot more efficient as well. Mm. Um, so the partnerships we're doing take local classified sites and effectively internationalize them. So you can transact with people everywhere because we have this kind of a mediation of that transaction that you don't get with the, the likes of sort of PayPal, Venmo, Asmo. Those, 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 those platforms are great, fantastic to pay people you do know. Um, I, you know that, that's not the world we're operating in. Mm. Um, these are uh, chunky transactions sort of 500 pounds and above where, well, hang on, I'm just about to send a bank transfer to someone I don't know hoping that they'll do what they say they will. And you, you gave me a stat that was, what, 12% of those transactions are fraud? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, yeah. They actually think that's quite conservative because, uh, so as we mentioned before, people don't talk about fraud. Um, <laughs> yeah, well. They do talk about fraud when it's really high-ticket stuff. So if you get defrauded when you lose your mortgage, I talk about that because I want that back. But mm. it's actually quite embarrassing to be defrauded by people um, at, at a low level. If it's 50, 60, 70 pounds, it's like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, you don't normally uh, talk about that kind of stuff. Um, so that 12% is, is, is a conservative estimate. So you're, you're a B2B to C business. You're building partnerships with the likes of Autotrader, Gumtree, Classified um, sites and trying to construct a marketplace for them, right? Um, yeah, so we, the, the similar way to the way that PayPal um, rolled out its technology 10, 12 years ago is that here is a very lightweight um, payment function that you guys can use it's in that same way we are um, giving it to these guys for free um, but and effectively changing their business model from a classified into a into a marketplace because the benefits of becoming a marketplace massively outweigh those of a classified and the generation coming up behind us won't, won't it won't resonate for them to go into meeting people in a car park to transact on a car or waiting five days or any of this other stuff so there's we're essentially future-proofing their business models, um, but it's taken a good uh, two years of, of, of our lives to create a system that, that's um, easy for the users to understand because as great as a B2B2C model is, you've got to convince two parties effectively. One is the platform that you're integrating with, and then it's their users. Um, so there's a big education piece that goes yeah. along with this. Um, I suppose it's, it's, it's an interesting point to find out because those partnerships are so important, and they are, they're important to lots of startups, depending on what market they're working in, that they can build strong partnerships that, I suppose, fuel their growth. But to get the credibility with, with these sites yeah. must be a huge thing for you. And, you know, you're, you talk about the fact on, on, on your site that, you know, you, you, you've got robust banking checks that make sure that the process is, is vetted. Yeah. And I suppose when you're a startup and you're new a couple of years ago, when you've just kind of come up with the idea and here's a product, standing in front of some of these businesses you're kind of iterating all the time, trying to convince them that you can provide them a solution that can fix their it's, problems. It, it's the mirror opposite of a traditional startup in the fact that you, um, with something, especially with when someone's money's involved, you can't just roll something out, hope it works, and then, yeah. sorry, you've lost your money. <laughs> you just can't do that. So we, um, it's a massive challenge psychologically to not be able to become transactional for a long time. So. Maybe sort of naively or arrogantly, we went out on this path saying, "Yeah, it's gonna, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to sort this out pretty quick, get the right team in place." But um, the fact that we're holding 
sums of money on behalf of clients um, mean that we have to be regulated to a level that other payment processes aren't. Mm. So we, uh, we went through a pretty rigorous process with the FCA, which took 13 months. Um, it was a new business model for them. They hadn't seen it before, um, which meant we had two, inter- two lawyers in our first 10 hires, which is nuts when you think about it. But for all the, the, where we're heading, all that expertise and knowledge had to be in place from day one before we transacted the first pound. Um, you had to create a system that has was fully regulated by the FCA, but also um, your, the, those funds have to sit somewhere. So our our friends at Barclays, who were our uh, our first banking partner, the governance and compliance that we had to go through to get hold of this type of account was extensive mm-hmm. because. Barclays are on the hook for those funds. If you can think of a scenario where we haven't checked the source of those funds properly, it means that when those funds are in Barclays, Barclays are on the hook for that. If that's come from a source that hasn't been fully vetted from a PEP list, sanctions list, anti-money laundering lists, that's on Barclays. So um, as rigorous as the FCA were, Barclays were as as rigorous with us. Um, so yeah, so two years, it, I wouldn't say it was in stealth mode really, but. Um, it, to get to the level where someone, some of these big, big partners would say, okay, these guys are credible. They have a um, have gone through an awful lot of hoops to get to where they are. Took two years. You wouldn't describe yourself as a startup anymore. We um, talked before we recorded that you're probably in scale up mode. I think so now. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. You can't operate as a startup anymore, and um, it's certain things that we've grown out of, and we had to really quickly just because the types of sums that we're dealing with. And the, the the type of partners that we have, you can't even mention you're the, you're a startup. It's not that that like we said the credibility and trust, you don't get that when you're defined as a startup. The credibility and the trust and having the expertise from day one must shape the culture organically. How or how hands on have you been in that though? Because over those two years where you've been a, a startup and you were part of the Tech Stars Accelerator, yeah. to now being out on your own. Have you made choices where you've gone, actually, this is what I want the culture of the business to look like? Or has it happened? Has hiring two lawyers in the first 10 hires really cemented a particular culture um, on its own? Yeah, I mean, it's you kind of you kind of think in your head, lawyers, you have a certain type of personality, <laughs> but there's a, a, a broad spectrum of lawyers out there of which sort of Jeff and Willem are not your classic lawyers, trust me. Um, it takes a certain type of person to dive headfirst into a, a startup. So Jeff was... Uh, employee number four and Willem mm. number eight, I think it was. They're not the classic lawyer you expect to find. Um, they're very flexible. Um, they need to attack things from a very open-minded point of view because uh, what we're trying to do is very different from what's existing out there. Therefore, you can't think the way that already exists. You have to not not stretch the the, the limits of where you go, but just think outside the box. And so we're regulated to do this. We could, therefore can't do this, but which partners can we find to allow us to go into certain verticals? So it's it, it, it's a very different type of lawyer with those two. Um, the same with everyone here. I mean, everyone is coming in at a, or came in at a level where not everything was wholly defined. And some people don't like that. Um, it takes a certain type of person to take a big leap of faith into a, a company that could evolve into something massive, but requires a, a lot of, of grunt work, uh, persistence. Do you think uh, that culture then is defined by your your vision as the founder? Um, I think that helps. I, it's you know the first five hires are absolutely critical, and mm. um, I've learnt from 
uh, bitter experience that if you don't get that right, it trickles down into everything. Um, so everyone has to think the same way, have the same expectations of themselves as well as each other. Um, the, the two founders, so Jerome and I, um, uh, we, we clash heads now and again, but it's for the right reasons. Um, we both want the same outcome. Um, and that's really important. If, you, mm. if the first five hires are all going in separate directions or wanting different things out of it, it's not gonna work. So yeah, I think most people I've hired, we've told, look, it's, it's not hugely stable at the moment. There's an awful lot to do, but we do have a home run on our, on our hands here potentially. And everyone's really excited. I like to think coming into work every day because you know, it's not quite there yet, but with the right stuff that, you know, domino effect of stuff that's happening, it could quite easily be. Now, uh, this isn't your first startup and your second startup you mentioned did fail. Yeah. What did you take from that experience? What was, if there were one or two lessons that really hit home that you've been able to carry through into this business that you talk about to other founders to say, you need, you need to be aware of this. This, this is where you yeah. can drop the ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so one of the key things was um, taking external funding without having pro product market fit is the number one cause of failure for most startups. Right. Because what it does, it layers in certain levels of expectations on the company when the company isn't fully defined or the, or the route isn't fully defined. So essentially what, you, what happens if you haven't got product market fit yet and you take on external funding, you start thinking in a way of how do I generate revenue as quickly as possible, which means that you start entertaining opportunities which may not be in the best interest of the company in the long term. Because you, you uh, especially here in the UK, it's like, where are revenues? What, uh, how does last month's better than this month? And where you, you're not even in a position to know where this company's going. Mm -hmm. So you therefore start partnering with the wrong people or start uh, taking the low hanging fruit where that might not necessarily be the right thing for this company. And so unicorns are normally built when you've got a, a North Star, something that's really a stretch goal and you focus heavily on hitting that uh, without sort of becoming a, uh, an also ran by taking up or focusing energy in a direction that may not be the best thing for the company in the long run. Um, and I've, that's, that was lesson number one is that we, you know, with the second company, we did really well raising a lot of money, but we had to really define where we were going. Right. Um, and, you know, caveat to that, I think most people would have taken that money if it was offered, um, but in hindsight, I wouldn't have. Um, and did, the you, did you start building something that you hadn't originally envisaged because of the um, pressure the money put on you? Basically, yeah. It was. Um, I think we made we made decisions that, you know, in hindsight, weren't the right decisions for that company uh, in the long run, and that's mm. that. That in a nutshell is what went wrong. Um, and with so with with Shieldpay, it was self funded for a long, long time. Um, the job of startup founders is to eliminate risk for people coming in after you. Mm. So we um, we didn't take any external funding until we were fully regulated by the FCA. Um, we had the, the the indications from the outside world that this had product market fit, um, and then it was a case of starting to talk to investors because they don't want to give you money to make mistakes; they want to give you money to scale. Um, and that was kind of lesson number one, two, and three that I took out of um, out of failure, basically. Last quick question: um, Looking forward with Shield Pay, you can drive a lot of interesting outcomes from the data that you're gathering on the consumers that currently these sites don't have, but equally you're 
growing your payment products and platform, I suppose. Yeah. There must be a temptation yeah. to say, hey, we can we can really play in two different spaces here, or are you going to focus on one? How do you see it evolving over the next yeah, so you, six ta- months? Tackling so? both of those at the same time would be a disaster. So it's more that, um, and we said it from from day one, is that you've got to, you've got to open up the funnel first, actually controlling the, f- the flow of funds, being world-class at that, and mm. the data will f- flow off the back of that. So you've got to, We've got to be world class at the holding of funds and the messaging around it. The data off the back of that is invaluable, but until you've got that flow of funds and that pipe work in place, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Um, no one's going to buy into that yet. So, in our PL right now, it's not even factored in what this data might be worth or how we package that and present that to these partners. It's just getting the stuff live. Mm. Um, and that's focus number one, two, and three for everyone in the room is controlling the flow of funds gives you optionality that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much stage two, stage three of this. Um, but getting these partners, these partners live and operational and functioning at a very high level is is everything that we're thinking about at the moment. Well, look, good luck with the rest of the funding round. Thank you very much. Thanks for spending some time talking to us, and uh, yeah, fingers crossed, continues to go well. Yeah, likewise. Well, thanks for having me. Cheers. I love that this idea was born out of a personal experience, and not a nice one. No, exactly. Um, I often think with, with this podcast series, when we talk to businesses where actually it wasn't really a business to begin with at all, but fixing a, a problem yeah. and then realizing that there was a model behind it, they're often the best businesses. Yeah, usually, yeah. Um, then yeah, unfortunately, uh, th- this friend of Peter's was duped by someone. Snap. Yeah, pretending to, to buy a car. Oh. And had done no, no means of making sure that uh, there was some kind of security built into the process and the guy just drove off with his car. Cool. I mean, it, it sends shivers down your spine, doesn't it? it? Does. We all know someone that's been, you know, he talks about being a victim of fraud and you don't talk about it if it's over under 100 quid. I was a victim of fraud of 150 quid when I was at university. It is, no, no matter how much money it is, I mean, 150 pound when you're at university is like a month's wages, right? Yeah, that is like buying yeah. a house. Um, <laughs> it really is. It goes a long way, especially with student notes and whatever, but it's, no matter how big or how small it is, if it's buying a car, if it's losing 50 quid, it's a horrible thing to happen because mm. you, feel, you feel the ultimate victim you can feel sort of thing. I think it's a really interesting point that, you know, that stat of about 12% of online transactions oh. are fraudulent. Yeah. But it's probably more because people don't tell. And there is that level of embarrassment. Exactly. If it's, if it's hidden on the internet, you don't want people to know that you've been duped. Yeah. When, I, when it happened to me, I mean, I was, less, I was younger than 21, but it does make you reevaluate a lot of things in your life. Like, do I need to change all my passwords? Should I be looking over left and right shoulder at cash points? You know, it does really reset the hardwiring in your brain to protect yourself again, sort of thing. You know, if you're shopping online, if you're shopping on something like eBay, yeah, there's user reviews and whatever else to protect you to a certain extent. Yeah. But you may well buy something that, football, retro football shirts are really rare, like originals. And ridiculously expensive. Mm, 250, yeah. 300 quid. Yeah. But what if that came through the post and it wasn't, Oh. what you wanted or imagined. How do you then go about getting your money back? So that level of transaction, having a platform to protect you is entirely entirely necessary. You can yeah. see and understand both for, I don't know, a car, but also for something of several hundred pounds worth, you want, yeah. you want protection. You do, you do. I really, really loved his story. Uh, well, sorry, this story as such, but it's something that is always on our minds, but we don't talk about it that much, you know, but especially for his business, so drenched in payments and trust and things like that, to call themselves a startup for the first two and a half years of their of their business life was a hindrance to them. Mm. When a lot of places, when you're trying to attract talent, especially going off kilter a bit, 
being a startup is the most attractive thing you can be. Even with some clients, you know, we're going to operate like a startup. We're going to do this. But when you're dealing with money and payments and trust, that kind of piece, it's like trying to bid with one arm behind your back sort of thing, right? Yeah. It's, it, which is crazy for me to comprehend, but it makes total sense. Let's move on to that, that, that interesting bit, because one, one of the parts of the podcast that I, I took away as being really insightful was around that startup piece. Yeah. Um, culturally, being able to tell staff, okay, we're not hugely stable, but we might have a home run on our hands. Yeah, love that, yeah. And people pulling together, um, and he talks about it being a lot of grunt work. Yeah. But having that real kind of, we're building something aspiration that we talked about so often. Being honest, isn't it? That same thing happened back, when I think back to Revolut, with, yeah. our, with our founders and our man's first day interview. They were honest with him, they wanted hard yeah, yeah, work, and they made him work hard. And that message, at the very first instance of a startup to new hires, Honesty, again, is integral. Yeah, Ed Cooper articulated that beautifully. Yeah. He also talks about how, how critical the first five hires are. Yeah. You know, from bitter experience, they have to have expectations of themselves and of each other. If you're pulling mm. in separate directions, it won't work. Yep. And it might seem obvious, but that's so true. Those first yeah. five hires really are yeah. fundamentally bloody critical. These are the people you're going to be spending upwards of at least sort of what you think it's in startup culture 10 hours a day with right you're going to be working weekends with them it's not just important to have diversity of thought there but you've also got to have a commonality a, a shared goal and it seems very much as though shield pay had that from the get-go mm. but maybe previously peter didn't have that in his old startup and he says which is what he's realized yeah i think possibly the number one learning from this is around that you know define where you're going have yeah. that vision for people to buy into yep and I love that he talks about, you know, that the number one cause of failure, in his opinion, is taking funding without product market fit, entering opportunities that aren't in the best interest of your yep. company because you feel that pressure. And the, the low-hanging fruit yep. actually might not be the best thing to, uh, to, to, to go for. Yep. So he talks about, you know, unicorns need that stretch target, that north star to yeah. aim for. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Yeah, it's good to know. you kind of think, let's get quick wins under the belt. And it's saying, actually... No, yeah, yeah, that might not be the best course of action. For you. We've we've had that conversation at um, not our last event, but the one previous. I think Kelly Kelly Waters spoke about that. You know how important it was to not just go for the fast, quick money. Once you've got your funding to to, uh, to appease the funders, you need to remain true to who you are and what your product is, rather than like you say and like Peter said, go for that low hanging fruit. We'll go to our advert break, so I can finish munching on my granola. Yes, hopefully it's not interfering too much with this uh, wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm just worried my microphone's very close to my mouth. Can it hear me swiping the copy? Can Hopefully it hear not. you? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're having a lovely time. We are. Over breakfast. Yeah. So here's the advert break. And then after that, we'll be back with the news. Hi folks, Dave here. I wanted to let you know that we've teamed up with audible.co.uk and we're offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook, of which there are over 250,000 to choose from. It's a 30 day free trial. It means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel that trial period or not. Free piece of advice, if you're gonna try an audiobook, go for Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Anyway, Sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Back to the show. Welcome back to Tech Talks. In the news today, we're a little bit inspired by Prince Charming himself, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> I thought, yeah, 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 I didn't know what way you were going to go with that then. 
So look, Justin Trudeau is is uh, the embodiment of a Disney prince in real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah doughy-faced. Absolutely. He is at uh, the GovTech Summit in Paris uh, today. Um, and this morning he was talking about the fact that technology needs to be implemented to enhance technology, sorry, to enhance democracy, yep. not undermine it. Yep. Which is obviously something we can all kind of agree with. Yeah. But <laughs> what I then found really interesting is going online into The Guardian and they have an interview with Donna Zuckerberg talking about how social media has elevated misogyny to, two, to, to new levels of violence. Absolutely. Which I thought tied very nicely yep. and kind of put some flesh on the bones of that. Tech needs to enhance rather than undermine. And here's an article all about how tech, unfortunately, is undermining democracy to yep. a certain degree. Yep. So if you're unsure, go to The Guardian. This is an article by Nosheen Iqbal, whose um, Twitter handle is Nosheen Iqbal. Easy. Easy. Yeah. What did you think about this, Jack? I loved it. I loved it. I mean, reading through this article, um, it's it, it's very good. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't know about Donald Zuckerberg before I read this article. No, I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, I did not know that there are four Zuckerbergs. No, that's crazy. Um, imagine, imagine that Christmas dinner. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of buzzwords and, and, and points here that Donna Zuckerberg mentions that that really flagged in my mind. So there's this, she's talking about unpicking the grim alliance between pickup artists, men's rights activists, which for those that have seen Parks and Recreation, they, they, there's a men's rights activist group in the comedy show Parks and Rec, and the main character says, there's no such thing as men's rights, which I find hilarious because it's always been men's rights up until the moment women wanted rights and equality. There's, oh, hang on, men feel left out because no, it's always been men's rights. And now we're, so that's quite funny. And uh, uh, what I found frighteningly uh, worrying about these red pillars, these sort of horrible men online. Just to, just to uh, explain yeah, red yeah, pillars in yeah, case you're yeah. sure. Anyone who's watched The Matrix, um, Lawrence Fishburne's character Morpheus offers Neo a red pill and a blue pill. The red pill to see how deep the rabbit hole goes. And the yeah. blue pill to uh, go back to your blissful ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. So red pill, this idea that they are realists. Yeah, which is a load of shit. That's bollocks. But anyway, um, and what I, and this is a quote, direct quote from Donna Zuckerberg. What I was surprised to find was the extent to which they're using ancient Greek and Roman figures uh, to prop up their ideals of yeah. white masculinity. Now, a lot of the Romans and Greeks were horrible people. A lot of them were paedophiles, misogynists. Um, well, there was, as the article says, there wasn't. There's not a word for rape in the classical world. There you go. Right. So. It's, it reminds me of what radicalists do with uh, religion, what these guys are doing with they these old texts. They appropriate what yeah. they want. Yeah, and they're translating what they think they're reading to be gospel, yeah. which is so male arrogance. <laughs> you know. Well, on that point, though, around the classics, yeah. Zuckerberg explains that, that political and social movements have long appropriated the history, literature, and myth of the ancient world to their advantage, borrowing the symbols of these cultures as the Nazi party did in the 1940s, can be mm. a powerful declaration that you are the inheritor of Western culture and civilization. Absolute horseshit. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But also very powerful, yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And look, when I, when, I say, when I said a second ago, absolute shit about the whole male rights thing, yeah. I don't deny that there are large parts of society that have a right to be angry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm from a coal mining community in northeast England. And you can understand why the Rust Belt and, and coal mining communities mm. um, feel isolated and vulnerable 
but then it is people like this online perpetrating these views people like donald trump yep that are taking advantage yep. of that vulnerability and twisting it and harnessing it and weaponizing it it's your steve bannons of the world your info wars whatever that crazy nutter is who used to present info mm. wars it's people like that who can pass off as looking intelligent and they're, they're not and then they get buy-in of a lot of other unintelligent people who think oh steve bannon's just quoted confucius or something you know something that's got yeah, real weight I, to I it i think we should be careful and maybe not say unintelligent but misinformed but ill-informed definitely yeah yeah maybe not yeah unintelligent but what, I, what i find what i find really dangerous about this whole thing though and this this kind of has to do with brexit if i'm perfectly honest um is that when people turn around then and go ah but it's the will of the people when the will of the people has been where they've they've come to a conclusion because they have been misinformed because they have been taken advantage of because yeah. they have yeah. been lied to yeah we elect representatives in modern democracies in the states and in the uk mm -hmm. to represent the views of their constituents because they have more access for information yeah not to vacate that responsibility yeah. and just go it's the will of the people it's like no do your fucking job yeah, 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 and actually yeah, go yeah. i'm i've been elected by you to tell you mm -hmm. what the best course of action is because i have more yeah. access yeah and and that's one of the breakdowns that i think is particularly dangerous where the social media echo chamber becomes particularly dangerous it's because awful, the will yeah. of the people is is twisted yeah yeah and it is easy if you're for it's kind of funny we talk about trump it's like that's how donald trump got into power people yeah. were annoyed people wanted change they saw some controversial headlines that they thought would really influence that change that they wanted and he won yeah and, and look as, as this article talks about specifically around feminism uh, you know it is without doubt that social media has allowed this to happen it says mm -hmm. so says donald zuckerberg um of, of the toxic moment that we're in at the moment. It has created the opportunity for men with anti-feminist ideas to broadcast their views to people more than ever before and to spread conspiracy theories, lies, and misinformation. Social media has elevated misogyny mm. to entirely new levels of violence mm -hmm. and, and, and virility. And that's true of all populism and political yeah. arguments that unfortunately were outside of the mainstream and are now very much in the mainstream. And at Web Summit last week, I was talking to um, Brazilians who were mm. talking about how WhatsApp was such a key part of that election. In that was a nasty election yeah. right in Brazil, yeah. This guy was only getting kind of 15 seconds on the TV a day, but it didn't matter because social media, yeah. WhatsApp groups, yeah. which are private. I mean, we've, we've seen the disruptive power that WhatsApp can have on communities in, in southern India yeah. and, and, and the way that people have been wrongly uh, pointed the finger at in terms of child abuse and, and, and sexual abuse yeah. and then been murdered on the back of it because misinformation spreads so easily. This is something we need to get a handle on. It's fake news. How do you stop fake news? And, you know, and people, people in, always interpret things the way that best suits them. Yeah. Um, I mean, what is clear to me is I've got a new favourite Zuckerberg now <laughs> after, after reading this article. I mean, you've got to go and read it because she speaks so well. Like, really, really, really good quotes in there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, love, I love that it, it talks about the contemporary slide towards populism has coincided with the exploitation of Facebook and Twitter, WhatsApp, uh, uh, etc., by ultra-nationalistic trolls uh, <laughs> and Russia, etc. Um, and, and, and the interviewer says, have you ever taken your brother to task? Um, I bet she has. And she says, I can see why you have to ask with, an, uh, with a smile, but I'm not going to answer that question. 
yes that's a definite yes it's 100% yes isn't it yeah good for her good for her yeah sitting around the Christmas table yeah exactly like, yeah. a little bit of one-upsmanship and it's like oh so brothers and sisters what have you know well, I've created Facebook the, biggest, the biggest thing ever in the world. Yeah. it's like yeah but you've destroyed society yeah yeah <laughs> you're also giving a voice to a lot of horrible people brother yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do about that no you know Family dynamic, like I, that, that, Gordon Bennett, that would yeah. be a TV show on, it, on its own. Christmas um, with the Zucks. Absolutely. Much more interesting than Cardassians. Yes, yes, yes. Tenfold. <laughs> <laughs> um, any further thoughts on that? Um, I mean, like I said, we could pick apart this article forever because there's, there, there's, there's so much interesting stuff. I just want everyone to go out there and read it. I think at the minute there, there is this acceptance now. Um, tech is so influential now that it's realised there's a mantle of responsibility there that it needs to adopt. Mm. And whether that's been done for the right purposes, where it comes to the, the, the giants of the industry, or simply because of political pressure, mm. I don't know. But across the industry as a whole, there seems to be a recognition that something needs to be done. Yeah. And Sir Tim Berners-Lee uh, and his contract for the web, that announcement at Web Summit last week, that's an important step. And it needs figures like him who have got the weight to be able to influence the real giants yeah. of the industry yeah. but i think it's it's a responsibility for everyone involved in the industry at all levels to yeah. to, th to think about okay not just social good we are building businesses like tessa yep. Olio was talking about yeah, but yeah. try and build social purpose and social missions into your businesses profit with purpose yeah. that's what that's what you want from a business profit with purpose and i think if we, if we think about that uh, then we'll probably be in a slightly better position, hopefully. And also, like this is one thing I've started to do online a lot more: call people out here being misogynist and bigots. Just, just call them out. Yeah. Because once they have to try and stand up for their stupid beliefs, they then make themselves sound even sillier. So, you know, there be a go. positive troll like me. A positive troll. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Jack. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us over breakfast, listeners. <laughs> we'll be back on Thursday. <laughs>